0: Welcome back to the Soak by Slush podcast, where we focus on tactical company building advice with founders, operators and investors who have built some of the most legendary tech companies on the planet. For our 10th episode, we're doing something a little bit special. I'm joined in the studio by not one, but two people for a conversation on building product-driven organizations. And what a lineup we have for the topic. I'm talking to Christian Reber, co-founder and CEO of Pitch, a German company that has raised over 130 million euros to revolutionize presentation software, as well as one of Pitch's board members and Steven Nandi, partner and CTO at LakeStar, one of Europe's foremost VC funds with investments in the likes of Airbnb, Klarna, Open Doors, Skype, and Spotify. Let's go to the episode. Steven, Christian, I'm really excited to have you here for this special conversation on the Slash Podcast on productive and organisations.
1: How is each of you doing today? Good. It's raining here in London, but given what we've been going through over the last kind of few years, I feel quite positive.
2: Yeah. So thank you very much for having us. I can report that the sun is shining in Berlin, so I'm doing good.
0: Fantastic. So let's dive right in. And I wanted to start with setting the context and framing for this conversation. So so Stephen, can you just explain what is a product-driven organization?
1: This is an often discussed topic. And for me, it's relatively simple. A product-driven company is really focused on, first and foremost, developing the product for the customer and iterating really quickly to find out whether they are serving a need or not. And they are intensely, almost insanely focused on the product being the center of the company, the center of the strategy and living and breathing what the feedback is and how to learn from that feedback.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And maybe importantly, what is it you're saying no
1: to by being product-driven? Like, what Like, is the inverse you're, you're not being by being product-driven? I think there's a couple of terms, market-driven or market-focused companies or sales-driven companies. Essentially, the big difference is that you may end up saying no to some requests coming in from some customers if they are not going to be accretive to the overall mission of the product and your startup overall. I think it's very easy for some early stage companies to get specific feedback from specific customers and start going down that track to secure a sale versus looking at the bigger picture and saying, well, how am I going to take my business forward? And so if you're going to go forward with a product driven approach rather than a sales driven approach, then you also need to be comfortable that your revenue numbers may very much be lagging your usage numbers and you're comfortable with that. And you're not going to get bloated with large sales teams early on.
0: Christian, let's bring you into the conversation. And I did want to start with, from Pitch's perspective, what have been the kind of key pillars of you being a product-driven organization? So basically, what are the important things you have done differently than you would have otherwise because you're a product-driven company?
2: Yeah, so I get that question quite often. And for me, it's always difficult to answer because I've I've just been born this way, being overly obsessed with product and product design and developing a bold and ambitious product vision. But I think there are a couple of things that are unique to like product-driven organizations. For us at Pitch, is, it's three things. It's how we designed the team, the processes that we have developed, and most importantly, how we think about growth. So from a team perspective, it started in the very early days. The way I picked my co-founders was by looking at the various disciplines that I need to build such a product. So me and my seven co-founders are actually a fully functioning product team from day one. Four engineers, a designer, a recruiter, and two business folks that can basically build the business. I think that is something very unique to product-driven organizations. You build your organizational structure and your team around the product from day one. And then... The processes that you try to implement are also very much focused on the product. We, for example, focused from the first week on creating a very high velocity in terms of how fast we improve the product and everything is built around shipping new features and improvements on a weekly basis. And it really for us is the DNA of the company. It's not just like the product strategy, it's who we are and it's the rhythm that we've defined for building our company and product. And I think the third point, how we think about growth is we always think about how can we grow our user base, our revenues through the product? How can the product accelerate the success of our companies and help us to build a long lasting business? Yeah. So I think these things are specifically unique for product driven organizations. Super interesting. And you mentioned
0: you optimize for the pace at which you ship product. And that seems like a virtue for any company, like the faster you can get product out there, the better. But how do you encode that into your culture as the team scales?
2: Yeah, I think to really understand that, you have to go back into how software development has worked 30 years ago or 20 years ago, where you had to like write a piece of software, print it on CDs, and distribute it through like, all sorts of online shops or other ways of distribution. And nowadays, it's just different. Right? right every company pivoted from very long shipping cycles to very short cycles and i think the reason we have developed this is because we wanted to provide a very simple elegant routine for everyone at pitch we have this saying like there's a shipping or release train coming in every single tuesday and we have many different product teams that focus on very different areas of the product experience And our briefing to them is there's a train coming every single Tuesday. You can jump on it or you don't and you skip this one and you jump on the next one. And it just helps us to simplify everything. It's just the way you ship software at Pitch is just incredibly simple and straightforward. And for us, we feel like if we don't ship, we're basically dead. So kind of
0: formalizing your shipping cadence at at one week every Tuesday. Um, that's fascinating. Steven, moving back to you, you sit on the board of Pitch and you also sit on the boards of some other exceptional companies, especially software companies. So what would you say is the one thing that stands out about Pitch in terms
1: of being product driven? I think Christian put it very well when he talked about the DNA of product release. And we see this, I see this in my previous life before I became an investor and certainly as an investor now, the discipline over, uh, weekly release cycles permeates through an entire organization. I've seen some organizations create competitive tension to get on that train. Some organizations have said, look, there's eight carriages, there's 10 teams, you can't all get on the train. So get ready and you know move fast. And if you're not on, then you want to get first in line for next week. And that creates an even greater kind of tension between the product and engineering teams and getting feedback on the features that get released. But coming back to your point about being on the board of pitch, I think one of the things that any board needs to consider when investing in a product company is are all the investors aligned with that vision that growth is the measure of success rather than revenues at this stage in a company? And I think that's critically important. And I think that's one of the things that's been really pleasing working with Christian and the rest of the board is how aligned we all are as investors to that mission of growth and iterative feedback and looking at the numbers. And over time, a revenue model, a sales model will emerge.
0: And actually... schedule, I want to bring Christian in on that point. So Christian, I assume as the founder CEO or co-founder CEO, you would set the board agendas that Steven was just referring to. So talk to me about some of the product topics that you bring on the board agenda. Like in what ways do you discuss products with your board?
2: Great question. I think it really depends on the stage of the business. I think if you are in your first year of operation, every single board meeting is basically just product. And like, How do you plan to differentiate? Are you taking customer feedback in? How are you planning to roll out your product and work closely with customers? And it's really just product. It's nothing else. And I think I'm a probably very visually driven person. So I like to showcase what we're building and how we're thinking about stuff and how we try to create more value for our customers. And then later in the journey, like we are obviously now at a little bit later stage, the product is in the market now since over a year. Now we tend to talk more about product led growth. So how can the product contribute specifically to, to accelerate growth in a meaningful way? So to be very specific, you talk about all sorts of like viral loops that you are trying to create or basically tweak to the extreme. And yeah, you really just talk through customer feedback, what is the product missing and so
0: on. And Christian, I wanted to ask you. Like a lot of this conversation ends up putting product and sales on opposite ends of the spectrum. And I think one way in which product and sales may end up being pitted against each other in an organization is when it comes to defining the product roadmap. Like, what part is the sort of internal analytic vision of the product team, and what part is the customer feedback of the sales team and being reactive to that? So, how do you balance that at Pitch?
2: Ah, uh, that's a deep question. So, I think we have very different sources or every product-driven organization has very different sources of feedback. It's many product stakeholders, it's loads of customer feedback, it's the big, bold product vision that you're trying to work against, and it's data. And balancing that can be a nightmare. It it can truly break you as a product leadership team. It can be hard to make any decision effectively if you try to consider absolutely everything. I can tell you how we try to manage that process. So we try to manage all the different sources of feedback through careful long-term planning. So we get our product teams together once a quarter. And we ask them to present everything that they have accomplished and also their plans for the upcoming quarter. And we as a leadership team try to use those days to provide careful, constructive feedback to everyone on the team to really be as ambitious as possible for their own individual team missions if you want to say so. And in the end, I think what I'm trying to optimize for is helping teams to develop a really good instinct for how great products are made. And I feel like that is, at least for me, it's the most difficult thing that you want to accomplish in any company. It's about sharing learnings and experiences transparently. It's about reporting successes as well as failures. And it's about being obsessive with all the little big details that... Make or break a great product experience. Something that I'm doing, for example, is I spend a lot of time on product, probably sixty percent or more of my time is on like reviewing new implementations, testing features or improvements and providing constructive feedback, which can be incredibly annoying for everyone on our team. But I'm trying to do that to somehow be a guardian of our product values and also to motivate everyone to maintain a very healthy and honest feedback culture, which is, I think, it's the thing you need once you scale a business.
0: Absolutely. Very interesting. And actually, prompts me to ask
2: an off-schedule
0: question to both of you. So maybe Christian from kind of pitch's perspective and and Stephen from the perspective of what you see at other companies as well, which is you just mentioned, Christian, you spend 60% of your your days or of your available time on product. So what are the right structures there? If you as a founder CEO want to stay in the loop, in an active sort of conversation with your product team, once your organization grows, what are the right structures there? Is it product reviews? Is it some kind of written feedback sessions like, how do you formalize those moments of time?
2: Yeah, we try to really design the organization in a way that it's ready for scale. So we think a lot about designing the company in a way that everyone can have a lot of autonomy and we really only interfere if we feel like something is going off plan. And it's a super difficult question to ask because it's, <laughs> that's probably the other core area that we're focusing a lot of time on. It's tricky to answer. In the end, you try to optimize everything, as I said before, around efficiency, high shipping cadence, clear focus on growth. I hope that Somehow makes sense. It it does,
0: and maybe Stephen, do you want to specifically comment on the kinds of sessions you should have in your weekly calendar as a founder CEO who wants to stay on product?
1: I think Christian is typical of a product-led founder spending more than fifty percent of his time focused on product. I think more than fifty percent of your time is is fine, depending on the stage of company you're at as well. Maybe you will be in every single product meeting. Perhaps you are the CPO in everything but title, and you hold on to that position fiercely until the last possible moment. And some of those founders, we are encouraging to bring in a CPO, but the CPO needs to be really good to displace the founder who clearly has set his or her heart on a 10 plus year mission. To deliver this vision. And so in a product led company, it's very difficult for someone to come in and be the surrogate CPO if the founder is so passionate about it. And we welcome that. We really do welcome that that passion from the founder. But it doesn't happen in all circumstances. And where it does happen, then we really encourage that to to continue as as much as it can. And
0: I wanted to have a bit deeper there with you, Stephen. So you just talked about delaying when you hire your first sort of external product focused C-level, probably called a a CPO. So when should you hire that person? What are the signs that you know? longer can be the sort of the steward of product but you need an external cpo to join you
1: some product visionaries are that they're visionaries and in being a visionary sometimes you can also create chaos within your organization because (laughs) you are throwing ideas out left right and center you are dipping in and out in a regular fashion and what may have been a really good approach and skill and passion whilst you're growing from say five or six employees up to 20 or 30 may not work when you're trying to go from 50 employees up to 100 to 200. In some cases, the nature of the founder allows them to scale, and him or her can scale and create order and create structures that allows the team to scale under them. In other cases, it just doesn't. And there is clearly a need to bring some order to the chaos. So that the engineering teams as they scale, the rest of the product teams as they scale can get a very clear, coherent roadmap and vision that they're all working towards in a structured way. And so sometimes the brilliance of madness doesn't allow scale to occur. And so that's where we start seeing the need to bring in a CPO. And again, it's not a situation where people are wanting to spend more time elsewhere. Typically, it's just where the organization's got to a necessary scale where the skills that got you here are not going to get you there. And it's time for change. And you need to manage that change carefully.
2: I would love to add something to that, because I've been through the process now the second time, and I've actually... I feel like I've mismanaged that in my first company. In, in, at Wonderlist, I did hire an amazing leadership team, great CPO, great CTO, someone who led finance and marketing and so on. And as a product-driven founder, I felt in like the fourth or fifth year of that operation, I felt really sad because I came to the office and it was like, I can't really work on what I'm truly passionate about, which is our product. And when I started Pitch, I tried to be really honest about it with my co-founders and also the first engineers, designers I've hired. And I, I was very transparent and said, I would like to be the head of product at this company and the CEO, because it's, I think, where I thrive the most. And I know I also have gaps. I'm not, let's say, the most educated or trained or experienced when it comes to like, organizational design processes, and maybe even creating a commercial organization around it as well. What I have tried at Pitch so far is really to fill that gaps with extraordinary talent. So I did actually hire a great VP product who I knew from 10 years ago already, who came from a very data-driven, growth-driven software company, to support me in like designing the organization the right way and creating a better understanding about how we should think about growth because I am clearly obsessed with the like the software so I think what it really takes is to be self-reflected and to understand like what do you actually suck at as a founder and if you understand what your gaps are you can hire the right people to fill those gaps ideally
0: And on that point, actually to either of you, what are the signs that an external sort of C-level product hire will succeed within the organization? What does brilliant externally hired senior product leadership look like? Where should you look for that person and what should you look out for?
2: I think it again comes back to the gaps that I've just talked about. If you said at Wonderlist, for example, I was a true beginner, first-time founder. I had no idea what I was doing, but I was very passionate about the product. And I hired a leadership team that helped us to get to the next level when it came to technology, just building a better, like technical fundament to the product. And also I hired a great product leader who brought the product to the next level from a pure design experience and like customer experience. And yeah, again, I tried to fill those gaps and that's really what you should look out for when you interview someone. But again, every founder is completely different. Every founding team is completely different. So there's no magical answer in like how you should structure product teams. It's probably different in every single organization. I think the thing i would add to what Christian's
1: already said is, and being one myself, as an ex-CTO, I think the relationship between a head of product and the head of engineering is a quote unquote special relationship. It can make and break how organizations move forward, especially Depending on who's the incumbent, who's there first, how long's that person been there, how much of their DNA and blood and sweat have they already given to the organisation? So I think that's another aspect. When you bring in a CPO, is really understanding what's that relationship between the CPO and the CTO or the VPO of product and the VP of engineering going to be, and how's that going to be harmonious, but at the same time have a healthy tension, a respectful kind of ear to each other's needs and desires, because there's a lot of engineers out there who believe they understand the product and understand the product roadmap. But having worked with a number of them and also worked with a number of product teams in my past, I can say that a great partner on the product side can really drive the overall mission of the organization forward at a much greater pace than you trying to do it all alone as an engineering head, just asking for feedback from users or from a junior product team.
0: Extremely interesting. Christian, then on to you and a couple of questions specifically mm-hmm. on Pitch. And I wanted to start with the kind of the foundational product milestone for any companies is getting to product market fit, like makes or breaks a, a company in the first few years, typically. In Pitch's case, you are going up against arguably one of the longest standing behemoth products in Microsoft's PowerPoint. And I think, you know, arguably, whereas normally you just need to build something that the market wants, in your case, it would seem like you would have needed to build something that the market wants 10 times more than it wants PowerPoint. So what did the path to product market fit and traction look like for you? And which things did you have to do differently because you were facing that severe, fierce competition? Uh, that's, a,
2: that's a fascinating one. And I think to really explain it, I have to share the history of pitch, really. So I really was interested in building a software product that can have a positive impact on the world. And initially, I got really interested in presentations and like building a software around it because I felt like they truly power the world. Like most economic, political, and business decisions are based on the output of presentation software. And I was thinking that especially in the business world, the most valuable companies, like Tesla or Apple, have absolutely nailed the art and craft of presentations, presenting, and storytelling. And I was thinking that the interesting part or the interesting opportunity for us as a team was that we can actually enable teams of smaller sizes, similar high-quality presentations without having a large amount of copywriters, designers, storytellers, and so on. And I've noticed that all the existing products, including the one you've mentioned, PowerPoint, Were really optimized for a single player experience, like for the individual user creating a deck. And what we have learned in the very early days of Pitch was that there is an opportunity for a software that's specifically optimized for Teams. So if we enable Teams to create high quality presentations in a really fast, efficient way, we can save millions of hours of lost productivity every single year. But it's true. In the end, we never really thought of Pitch as as yet another presentation tool, yet another alternative to PowerPoint. What we thought really hard about, like, where is the true value behind Pitch? And we looked at the entire journey of creating presentations and also sharing them, distributing them, and testing them and analyzing them. And we understood that the market was extremely fragmented. So if you create, let's say you're a PowerPoint user, you you start creating a deck, then you have a really hard time because you don't really have great templates. You don't really know how to start. It's a very difficult, challenging process to create a deck in the first place. But then once you completed it, sharing a deck is actually equally hard. You either decide to convert a presentation into a dead file format like PDF, and thereby you lose all sorts of like analytics capabilities. You don't really know how well your deck performs. You can't really make it interactive. And you have to rely on third-party tools. When we started Pitch, those tools were DocSend, for example, to upload them, create a custom link, get additional data on them. And if you wanted to share a deck publicly, you had to rely on, again, another third-party tool like SlideShare. And I felt like, this market is so fragmented that you really need like an all-in-one presentation tool that kind of does everything for you. And we developed that mission that, that we want to turn Pitch into the world's first Complete platform for presentations where you get the best tools for creating decks in a team blazingly fast, where you can share decks easily through just a link. You get real time data on how well your decks perform, which slides are being viewed, how much time your viewers spend on which individual slides. And yeah, really want to cover that entire journey. But yeah, transparently speaking, developing that vision was really tough and yeah, bringing a plan how to attack that market it was incredibly challenging and difficult.
0: Very interesting. So building, not building something that is 10 times better than PowerPoint at large, but something that is 10 times better in a specific use case that that product isn't optimized for. I'm still going to press on this point though, because it's interesting. So I think classic kind of startup lingo is saying that if the first product you launch doesn't embarrass you, you're (laughs) launching too late. So I'm interested, what was the moment in which you publicly launched Pitch? Because I would assume with that competition and with there being like still such a good product out there in the market, you can't launch something that That is embarrassingly bad.
2: I know, I think you're absolutely right. But I think the way you launch products these days has maybe evolved a little bit. So we had 80,000 people that signed up on our waitlist. And we could have decided to just launch the product and see how well it performs. And then if it doesn't work, make improvements. And we thought that is not the best strategy for launching pitch. So what we have done instead was we've done a lot of research, we surveyed our waitlist and tried to understand then like, who is actually interested in pitch and why? And we tried to identify teams specifically that had a need for pitch. And then we onboarded them in 45 minute calls and gave them a very deep product demo. We asked them about their current pains with existing tools that they're using. And we really worked with our customers to perfect the product experience. So we very carefully scaled from like one active team to five active teams to 10 active teams. And sometimes we also paused in the rollout process to make sure that we improve certain product experiences before we invite more and more customers and users. In terms of when did we start that process, that was actually initiated by actually the first person we've ever hired, one of our engineers who said, I know pitch is kind of rough still, but it gets the job done. I think we should." ship this. And that was specifically the day we we understood, okay, it's still that embarrassingly early phase where lots of details aren't perfect, but it's definitely good enough now to, to get the first customers uh, onto the product and see how well the product works. And I think that's also, to be honest, really what our customers value. We often get that feedback that we take in feedback really well. We optimize the product very quickly. And yeah, so that's, I think, how we got there. Absolutely. And I'm going to squeeze in two more questions. Rapid
0: fire style. Christian, you said that you were born this way. You're a product led or product driven CEO. What are the three most important concrete traits or skills of a brilliant, exceptional
2: product driven CEO? God, that's like praising myself feels a bit awkward. But the way I can answer this, I think what helps me to be a successful product leader is that I actually have a lot of experience in writing software myself. So I have a background as an engineer, probably still understand most of the stuff we're doing on the engineering side. I observe every single trend in, in the software world. So I'm always on top of every new kind of product category or any kind of like, tricks and like how you roll out a new software or how you improve a certain product experience. I obsess in observing the best product companies in the world, read every single product announcement from all the big players. And I think that's my kind of like recipe for success. I don't know how it is for others and for other product-led founders, but that's certainly like my story, I guess.
0: Absolutely. Continuing on, Steven. What is an important truth about company building that very few people would agree with you on?
1: Uh, I think if you were to ask people who've been around for a while, I'd say that any great founder needs to be comfortable being very uncomfortable. And by that, I mean, there's going to be some really heartfelt decisions that you're going to have to make that only you can make. And you're going to agonize over them, you're going to have sleepless nights, you're going to get conflicting feedback, you may get a split board, you may get split situations amongst your founding team, your co-founders, and ultimately, you're going to have to make someone unhappy, and you're going to make somebody happy. And these are deeply emotional conversations. I think we all believe we can make, especially us who have been engineers in the past, we can make decisions based off of data and facts and be unemotional about it, but the emotions do come in. And so I think that's not something that's probably discussed as much as as I'd expect, having gone through some of those emotions myself and then seeing some of my founders also going through similar emotions, you're going to be in a very uncomfortable situations where you may have to fire your best mate who was your co-founder. It may be that you yourself are not the right person to take the company from a Series B to a Series C. But yet you gave birth to this baby that is your company that's been your life and soul has taken you away from your family, perhaps for the last four, five, six years. And now, you know, it's now the right time for you to hand the baton over. These are deeply uncomfortable questions and points in time. But as a founder, you're going to get hit with those at some point. And the more you bury your head in the sand, the harder it's going to be to make the right decisions. So I think these are some of the things that are very difficult to manage and perhaps aren't spoken about as much as some of the things we've spoken about today.
0: That is a fantastic, sobering note to end on. So, Stephen, Christian, thank you so much for joining. I love the conversation. I learned so much, and can't wait to put it out there in the world. Thank you. Thanks
1: a lot, Miko.